Uh, I view it inherently creative in the sense that what we're talking about is how do we take principles from economics and payment and decision-making behavior and braid them together in a way such that we achieve the goals we want, the values we want, one of which I believe should be equity. And I think the moment we shut that off, the moment we say, well, out of our options, we have three. Why three? Why not five? Three, because that's how we've always done it. We've lost something really important. Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Josh Liao. Dr. Liao is a physician and the Associate Chair for Health Systems in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington, where he's also the Enterprise-Wide Medical Director of Payment Strategy for University of Washington Medicine. He trained in internal medicine in Boston at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he was a clinical fellow in medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also an adjunct senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics in the Wharton School at UPenn. Josh is a leading national expert in healthcare payment and delivery policy. His expertise is on value-based payment models. He's provided expertise to national and state policymakers. Josh is a prolific researcher. He's published over 200 articles in some of the leading journals like New England Journal of Medicine. His ideas and insights have also appeared in media outlets like the Washington Post, Forbes, Boston Globe, NPR, Seattle Times, and Philadelphia Inquirer. We recently got an amazing podcast review on Apple Podcasts from Jules Sherman. She titled her review, Design Lab is My Religion. Thank you, Jules. I've read that review over a dozen times. It really inspires me. We really appreciate that. And thank you to Susanna Fox for giving us a shout out on Twitter. Susanna loved our interview with Wendy Sue Swanson. Susanna has been on our dream list of guests for the show for a while now. She'll be coming on soon. She's been busy this year writing her manuscript for a new book. So I'm so excited to learn about that and have her on the show. So that's how you as a listener can support the show. Go on to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment. That's currently the only platform where you can actually leave a comment and review. It really helps us out a lot. And please share this podcast with others. Just find another person this week. If this podcast is something that you listen to, that you find helpful, please share it with a friend. I apologize for the audio recording that I had with Dr. Josh Liao. I don't know what I was doing. Maybe my mouth was too close to the mic, but I sound a bit muffled. Apologies for that. Josh sounds great though. And I think you'll love my conversation with him. Josh Liao, welcome to Design Lab. So good to have you here. Thanks for having me. You're joining us from Seattle. Can you describe your work to us? Sure. Yeah. So I'll use the kind of the kind of concept of hats and how many I wear there. And the first is I'm a practicing physician. I'm an internal medicine physician here, the University of Washington. Uh, and I see a broad range of patients with a range of clinical conditions. Outside of that, the second hat I wear is I am the associate chair for health systems in the department of medicine here, which is the largest department in our school of medicine. And in that way are really able to engage people across the department within and beyond in things related to how we organize, pay for, and deliver healthcare. 
The third thing I do is I'm, I actually lead a portfolio of work in that area of health systems where we study, how do we pay for healthcare? How do we organize, deliver it? And then how do people experience that care? And then what does it do to their outcomes? And then the last thing I do is I'm an enterprise medical director on top of that, where I work with our health system on those issues. So really said simply, I see patients, which I really enjoy. And then I work on health systems in a couple of different ways. Those are a lot of hats. Uh, so before you entered into medical school, you had an interesting major. You were a literature major in college. That's right. That's right. How did you make that leap from literature to medicine? Did you want to become a writer before? Yeah. So I was always fascinated with the human experience and I wanted to understand that. And, you know, what I loved about literature was this idea of trying to reach across time, space, culture, ethnic heritage, worldview, political and, and kind of cultural environment to understand someone else's perspective. Oftentimes people who've passed away, that's incredibly hard, but I think to be able to do that is incredibly meaningful. And I wanted the work that I did to kind of reflect that. And then I had this experience where I worked with an NGO and got to meet a number of really cool physicians and public health people. And they basically left this idea in my head that you can do that in medicine alongside of some very scientific things you can do to help people with their disease and their health. And so it was a bit of a left turn, but I, I went from Shakespearean Jacobean drama, which is what I wanted to do, um, into medicine. Wait, 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 I always what, kept that thread. What, what do you mean? You wanted to go get like a PhD in English or something like that and write books? Yeah. So my work was around Shakespeare and pre-Shakespeare. So it was like Elizabethan Jacobian drama. And so like in my mind, the ideal career would be to spend part of the year at the globe and study kind of themes and drama. And so uh, I, I wanted to, yeah, to take that forward and get a PhD and do that. And here I am <laughs> wearing different hats. That's crazy. But so you said before you're half Taiwanese, half Japanese, would your Asian parents have approved of that path of not becoming a doctor? Because mine would never have approved that. Because I, like you, I was a humanities major, I was a classical studies major. And I was thinking about maybe getting a PhD in that, but I think they would disown me. My parents, I think, were as good as I possibly could have hoped for in that. I think they asked probing questions. They certainly nudged me to think about the tough choices. And you could tell underneath maybe some of the things they weren't directly saying, the hidden curriculum, I'll say, of what they were trying to communicate. But they were supportive throughout. I think had I gone beyond my undergraduate studies, I think increasingly you would have heard that dial up in, in volume in terms of the concerns. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you didn't get, end up getting a PhD, went off to medical school and residency. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I completed medical school in Texas and then went up to uh, the Brigham and Women's Hospital to do medicine. Residency. Okay. And that was at Rice in Texas? That's right. Okay. That's right. Are you from Texas? I lived in Houston for a little bit. Yeah, I'm from Texas. Born and raised in Dallas. And then I went to Rice in Houston, uh, Rice University for undergrad. I stayed in town for medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, and then went up to the Northeast to Brigham to do my medicine residency. Cool. And so your expertise is how we pay for healthcare. And before we talk about things like payment and reimbursement and delivery, why is this interesting to you? Because paying for healthcare is probably the most complicated thing in healthcare. And I, I know only a little bit about it because I went to policy school at Princeton and then studied under a great economist, Uwe Reinhardt. And 
I was blown away by how healthcare is financed. I had no idea how, who paid for healthcare, even though I was a practicing doctor. And when I learned about it, I, I was just thinking, this is the most complicated thing in the world. So why would you, why are you interested in that? Yeah. I ask myself that some days. No, I'm joking. I, I think, <laughs> you know, it, what I've always been fascinated by the common thread throughout, I think my education and now career has been really trying to understand that gap between what we do in biomedical science and how people um, experience healthcare and how they do and their health outcomes. And I think uh, that's always fascinated me. And what I mean by that is that if we develop a new therapy, a new test, uh, a novel approach to things, like I think sometimes if we're not careful, we think that then leads to better health outcomes. It's certainly branded that way. It's sold that way. Uh, we internalize it that way. But in truth, there is this gap that once you have that innovation, you then need to do something with it. You need to find a way to pay for it, to organize that care, to deliver it to people. And then when people perceive it, they need to then make a decision, right, about that innovation. And then you can begin to talk about the outcomes. And I think increasingly, as I went through my education and career, I saw that was an area where I wanted to see more work. And I thought if I engage in it and I, it takes, and I like it and I'm passionate about it, I'll keep going. And I, I think you're right. It's incredibly complicated, but I also think it has incredibly outsized effects on all the things that come after in that kind of gap that I'm describing. Can you give an example of this gap? Sure. Yeah. So I think there are many examples, but think about any medication or any new imaging therapy that we might have. I think often in biomedical science, we think, okay, we have a new imaging modality. We have a new therapy, a new procedure and a new medication. And these are great. So this is going to revolutionize healthcare. And it turns out, in my view, that gets us to the starting line. Now we have to then think about how do we finance this thing? Is it covered in our health benefits? How would people know it's covered? How would people and their loved ones, their doctors, their clinical providers, how would we think about using it? When do you prescribe it? When do you not? And then even if prescribe it, can people get it, right? Do they have access to that? And finally, then how does all that wrapped into, again, that person's personal context, right? Their own situation. And then we can start saying, okay, this new therapy, this new drug can, can affect outcomes. So we see this all the time, biomedical innovation. And what I try to do in my work is to take that the last mile of, of the payment and the delivery so that people can really benefit from it. And so that people don't get exposed to things that won't provide them benefit. Mm -hmm. You talk about this thing called behavioral architecture. I thought that, I thought, I love that term. What the heck is that? Yeah. So, so it's not my term, but there's been term that's been coined among behavioral scientists around this idea of choice architecture, this idea that our choices don't occur in a vacuum. So you can imagine a classic example would be you walk into a, a store to, to buy groceries. And what you're struck by, of course, is that candy bars are not at the front of the store. Where they are, oftentimes, it's at the end of the store, right? When you're checking out. And there's a physical structure. You're in a lane, you're lined up, you're waiting for your turn. But there's also a decision or behavioral architecture to that, which is that perhaps your resolve is different at the end. Perhaps as you're kind of slowed in moving in that line versus you can go anywhere you want at the beginning of your shopping trip. So there, there are these behavioral pieces that kind of if you have the lens to see them, they drive how we make decisions. And my view is that almost every choice we make has an architecture around it. The question mm. is not whether there is one. The question is, what does it look like? And how do the factors come together to help us make good or less good decisions? That's fascinating. So someone's designing the behavioral architecture of the healthcare choices that we make, right? Like, 
can you give an example of how some of our healthcare choices are designed? Yeah. So I think a classic example would be how we use electronic health records. I, I don't know any clinician that hasn't struggled or struggled at some point with how that's used. And the me, reality me is- at the electronic health record every time I use it. Right. <laughs> it's better and, than paper, paper records for sure. So I wanted to say they are better, but right. they frustrate the hell out of me. And, and, and let's key in on that frustration, right? Because I, you and I are singular and alone in that frustration. And I would say at least part of that comes from the choice and the designer architecture that's in that. It's not just the architecture of mapping files. What I mean is how you click what and what you don't click to get to where you want to go. Mm. And it makes certain decisions really incredibly hard, right? And it makes certain decisions incredibly easy. And the issue is that sometimes the easy ones are not the ones you want. The ones that are easy are not the ones that are preferred. And I think that's what creates frustration. And then when it gets in the way of patient care, it creates other issues too. And so EHRs are a perfect example of that. And I think there's a common kind of sentiment that they are often designed for billing and other kind of administrative purposes, not for patient care. And so that's a perfect example of that architecture. A hundred percent. I want to ask you a question of why is the financing of healthcare, how we pay for healthcare, so freaking complicated? It's like if you go into a restaurant and you can't even pay for your meal because the meals are so expensive and there's price opaqueness where you don't even know how much your meal costs. Right. I mean, that's what that's what healthcare is like. Why is it so freaking complicated? Yeah. Listen, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think there have been people who articulated the historical reasons of how healthcare was spun up in this country over time, how it traversed the decades and kind of the accretive nature, how got things got added and got added. So there there is a lot of that. And some of it's very Byzantine. So I just want to set that aside and say that's real. But I think there's two other kind of things that strike me. One is that we think of healthcare payment and markets and economics, but we don't think about our health that way often, right? This is not buying a fridge. Um, where you go in and say, okay, I can afford it. I can't, I like it. I don't. You make a decision. How we think about our own health and the health of our loved ones is incredibly wrapped up in these factors that we don't have in other quote markets. So I think above and beyond just who's paying and how it's, how complex it is, is how we make decisions about it is, is not easy. I would also say then, you know, how the kind of actors in this field, insurers and healthcare organizations make decisions is also not so straightforward. I think that's one. I think the second one is that there is a difference between maintaining and preventing, right? Maintaining health and prevention versus what some people call sick care, which is like helping us recover from illness. And that's often said, but I think you see that show up in payment where that how you'd want to pay for those things. Are, and then if you were to zoom in one level, paying for a chronic long-term condition where you need regular care is very different than a rare occurrence, trauma, new cancer, yeah. et cetera. So I think to have a payment system that traverses all of that, given the history in this country, is incredibly hard. Mm. You are part of a movement called Advance Equity in Healthcare Payment that just launched this week. Can you tell us about that movement, why you're part of it, what it is? Absolutely. I'm happy to tell you about it. And let me just step back and say, one of the things is I think about how did I get here? How did a, a lit major <laughs> come yeah. through that, learn about hemidesmosomes and like, and then move all the way uh, through clinical medicine is focusing on payment. I think one of the things um, that's important is that those of us who really care about equitable, good outcomes for people, that we have people in every part of healthcare pushing towards this goal. It's gonna take all of us, right? That's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to do, but it's still true no matter what. And what I realized is both in my 
perhaps affinity for it and the opportunity that was there. I wanted to be that person that was in those conversations about payment and delivery and how we finance care. I wanted to be able to think about how can we speak up for those people who have been historically marginalized, who have not had the seat at the literal or proverbial table. That's always driven me. And I remember at one point thinking, if none of us are at that table, we can't affect change. You know, if we just throw our hands up and say, ah, it's complicated, it's, this is a lost cause, then how will we ever affect change? And so that's really what's driven me. And I think this initiative you're describing, Bon, is like an example of that. This initiative you're describing, I think, is an example of that. And it highlights my desire to use payment as one way to support equity. And so to tell you about it a little bit, it's a movement that based on the premise that everything we do in healthcare either promotes or potentially detracts from equity. And that unfortunately, payment in this country up until now, besides being complex, has been one of those things that are more traditional fee-for-service, pay more for more services, mm. and a newer movement to pay for, quote, value. While they've done, they have the roles and they've done important things, they haven't actually helped us address this issue of inequity um, and health inequity in this country. And so this movement at its core is trying to begin to address that. It's to raise awareness and to implement programs and initiatives where we can begin to do that using payment. I mean, would you say that we can't have equity unless we re redesign how healthcare is paid for? I think so. I think so. I, I want to be clear that I don't think redesigning payment equals equity. There are many things we need to address, but I have a hard time seeing equity without changes to the payment system. Yeah. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the number one cause for bankruptcy, is it still medical bills in this country? It is. And in a country as, you know, wealthy as ours in a number of different dimensions, I think that really is just a travesty that that occurs with that frequency. And, um, and again, I think that when you confront that, you begin to confront all the different parts, all the facets of, oh, but there's this kind of payment and that kind of reimbursement is at this level. And I think that makes us shut down. There's a cognitive kind of closing off to that. And for whatever reason, again, I think I have an affinity towards it and I've been fortunate to work in that space. And I don't want those of us who are working on payment and delivery to close down. Yeah. I want us to engage that. I shut down, honestly, because I, I hear there's, it's so freaking complicated and there's so many stories out there of people not getting the care they need because they can't afford it. So I, a friend of mine just told me of a teacher who had to get a COVID test for their kid in order for the kid to get back to school, but they couldn't get a rapid test anywhere. They had to go to some urgent care and ended up paying 200 bucks. And, and yeah. it, it's, it's a lot of money and yes. they're trying to get reimbursed from the school for that $200, but they can't go back to school and skate. They get that test out there. And I think that's crazy. The pandemic has been going on for almost two years and we can't provide people free access to testing. That's going to deter people from getting tested. It's. I totally agree. And I would say COVID provides a very you know, salient use case of this issue of you can develop technologies at immense speed, right? Around tests and vaccines and therapies. And, but if you don't find a way to pay for it, and then deliver it to people. And then those people have to make a decision conditional on which, how you're paying for it. We won't get the benefit of it. People won't get tested. They won't get the, the right preventive measures. And that's exactly the heart of why I do what I do. I think the cases if you're highlighting are, are really unfortunate, but highlight the opportunities to like fix that. And I wanna say one other thing, which is that often there's this idea of, okay, well, this is the 
payment and delivery system. So how can we work around it? Now, I really want to take a more foundational view, right? And say that any system of paying for and delivering care, there are values behind it. So th this initiative, my work is not to say, let's take it on its face and then try to like work around it. Let's go back to the core of it and try to redesign it. I remember my, I remember a story that my economics professor had told me about Canada and how they have universal payer system. So one payer, the government pays for all, all healthcare because they, it was a moral decision. They believe in this value that everyone should have a right to healthcare. And so is, is that where you're saying that it's kind of almost like a moral decision around equitable care and payments? Absolutely. I, I think on a higher level, I would say when we think about payment, I think there's broad recognition that how we've historically paid in many parts of this country for healthcare, just fee for service. You get a fee for the service. The more services, the more fees. I think we realize that there, that hasn't yielded the health outcomes we want. The issue is that the more recent um, trend towards value-based payment, which instead of paying for volume of services, pays for value, um, I think while it's done some good things, has its limitations too. So if you just think about value for a second, how do we think about value? Often, many of us think about it as, generally speaking, quality over cost. Mm -hmm. So I buy a good for one cent, that might be very, that might be very high value for a million dollars. It's a very low value. The thing's the same, the quality is the same, but you got to divide it by the cost, right? That's been a helpful framework for many. The challenge with that bond becomes we don't necessarily think in our design and our choice architecture around how to pay for healthcare. We're not thinking about equity. We're not saying how high value is it for a person to get the service? We're, we're, we have to ask, do different groups and different people, do they all have the same access to that? So not the biggest proverbial bang for your buck, but the most even bang for your buck. Are different groups getting the same benefit? I don't think it's okay morally to say certain groups are getting a lot of benefit and others get just a little. Yeah. Or some get some and then some get harms. I think that to me is the moral proposition here. I think that's going to be hard in, in this country. Don't you think so? If, does that mean the people who have great healthcare right now, like like myself, we may get healthcare that is maybe more restricted if we had more equitable healthcare throughout our society. Like for, for example, I, I broke my knee. I have a little piece of my tibia that was fractured off when I went surfing. Mm -hmm. And I was able to text with a doctor and that doctor set up an MRI. Like I could have gotten it that day. I was like, this is remarkable. I have such access where I'm, I didn't even get on the phone with this doctor. I'm just right. texting back. Here are my problems. Uh, he saw my x-ray. Then he ordered me an MRI and I got it like that. I got the read and I got a doctor to take a look at it that day when it was yeah. done. It was remarkable. But wow. am I unfairly benefiting from a system that um, favors people like me? Yeah, I mean... So there's so many things to say there, but the first is that no payment approach is immune to unintended consequences. I think we can set an intention to have equity be a centerpiece of payment. I think we should do that. That's what mm -hmm. the movement you described is really trying to advance in some ways. That said, there's no, we're not going to identify some model that would be perfect. So I think that's really important. I mean, to your point, I think we need to really balance the issues of access, quality, and spending around healthcare. We have a spending issue, right, in healthcare. So I, I think actually the tension in some ways is a healthy one because if you lose tension, either you solve the problem or the line is broken. 
And so I think it will continue to be a tension in that way. So I don't think it's so much as, as restricting the type of care you just described. I think it's more making sure that if there is a payment mechanism that permits what you just described, that others who may be like or less like you along any dimension are able to have that. And if our system actually draws people further apart in that way, makes things more disparate, we have to ask a question about why and if that's what we want. What examples are there from other countries that have gotten it right around designing payment and values? Yeah. So I think there are many examples. Um, there's no country, to my knowledge, that's gotten it perfectly right. There's always a trade-off um, in this. But I think, you know, there have been countries that have said, we will make this a good that we provide to our citizens. And so walking around wondering, should I get seen for this issue? Should I text the doctor because of my MRI? Is this going to bankrupt me or make me not be able to put food on my table? Taking that load off of people's minds is incredibly valuable. And I think a number of countries have done that. So I think that's one. A lot of what I do is a kind of beyond that. So if you have access, what does someone have access to, right? So that becomes kind of what are essential benefits? What do people um, kind of get as a core part of being a citizen of a country or a resident of that country versus the things that, hey, you know what? This is like, you have to pay for this incrementally out of pocket. And so I think there are countries like Taiwan, I think Japan, I think Canada, I think the UK, Germany, you can point to examples where they have done things in different ways to address these two issues. Mm. It seems like we have a insatiable hunger for healthcare in this country. Let's talk about urgent cares. That wasn't a thing when I started residency. And now mm -hmm. every corner of America has an urgent care. Mm -hmm. Weren't we fine before without urgent cares? Or when you go into a community and all of a sudden the health system decides to build a new hospital and those beds get full within a year. That community existed for so long without a hospital. What is the deal behind that? Yeah. Gosh, this is where I wish we continue to have work from people like Uwe and other people, right? This is incredibly like complicated stuff. But I think a few threads of what I'm hearing from you, which I agree with, is that um, one, there is this like tension between like supply and demand. Like, do we need all that healthcare? And in my world, we often think about that as, you know, high value or low value care. That's incredibly hard to figure out. But I think that our, my, my point to you would be our payment system has only provided additional wind in the sails of organizations to do that, to build urgent cares, to build outposts, to have large centers where people get care. Whether that's needed or not, this is at the heart of the tension bond because I'll give you an example in a second. I can't speak to whether that's good or bad, but I'll just say our system is driving that, whatever you think. Mm -hmm. And the two things I was going to say was that you said it's hard in this country. Healthcare is hyper-local. I think it will always continue to be, right? So do I think there's a solution for where I am in Seattle and you are in Philadelphia? No, I think it'll look a little different and that's okay. And that's appropriate. I think any change we make in healthcare is also exists not in a vacuum. We have to like adapt it from what exists today. And so I think those are kind of two key points um, I would make. Let me give you an example of what I was talking about related to the overuse piece. Do we really need all this care? And so one of the areas of clinical care that's been really focused on by kind of payment models has been a joint replacement surgery. So getting your hip or knee replaced. The idea is like high volumes, potentially high cost, do people really need it, et cetera. So there have been programs launched to, to address that, right? To try to address the kind of the cost consciousness and the quality of that care. I think a lot of people view it as like fewer surgeries, the better. I think that's oversimplistic for a few reasons. But one is that we fail to recognize that certain groups um, for example, Black and African-American individuals, 
they actually historically underutilize that care. And that's for a myriad of reasons. But if you're trying to decrease, for example, joint replacement overall, you have to ask the question for groups that have historically gotten underuse, should you be decreasing it more? Or might under the framework of equity, you want to actually see more of that. So going back to your urgent care, just purely hypothetical here, maybe some people don't need that care, mm. but maybe it actually provides access for those who have historically not been able to get it elsewhere. Mm. Incredibly thorny, really complex. But those are the questions I think we need to grapple with in a local way. Mm. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about your own path. And you have a diverse route to this and a very, I, I would argue, creative background. And does creativity still play a role in your type of work as a clinician and your research? Yeah, in short, and I don't think that most people would pair uh, payment and care delivery work, health systems work with creativity, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, I view it inherently creative in the sense that what we're talking about is how do we take principles from economics and payment and decision-making and behavior and braid them together in a way such that we achieve the goals we want, the values we want, one of which I believe should be equity. Yeah, And I think the moment we shut that off, the moment we say, well, out of our options, we have three. Why three? Why not five? Three, because that's how we've always done it. We've lost something really important, right? That's where creativity has either like is, is flickering and, and about to go out. I think it's much better to think about it as we've originally thought of them as three. Let's step back and be creative and think about other ways to do this. Let's not imagine recreating the wheel. Let's go to other countries, right? Let's look in our own history and learn. Let's actually go to different communities that have different dynamics around payment and how that's worked and not worked. And let's take that and create new ways. So I, yeah, absolutely. I think creativity is a centerpiece of what I try to do. That's great because there's a lot of listeners who are thinking about entering into the field of medicine. And I think what scares some people off is that they don't look at healthcare as a creative field. So is, it's possible, right? If you're a creative person to exercise those creative muscles, whether you're a researcher or a clinician. Absolutely. I think clinical care provides a really um, interesting like, example of how creativity is there. And yet, yeah, I think appropriately, it has to be contextualized within everything else. So research is a thing where you're always pushing boundaries. You're trying to study new things, right? Within ethics and what's appropriate, you're, you're trying to study new things. There's a band of stuff we do in research that's not ready for prime time in clinical care. And so I think that's okay. So it's not like creativity, unbridled, just doing whatever you want. But I think if you take the right lens, you will see creative elements of many of what we do, of many of the things that we do in clinical care, certainly in research, even what I would make the case. In, but I think it, I would encourage those who have creative bends to try to view the world that way in healthcare, because for lack of those people, I think we fall into less creative ways of doing things, which I'm not sure is the best. Oh, a hundred percent. I think we have some really bright minds in medicine, but I, I would argue that if we had a little bit more diversity in perspective gifts that we may not look so homogenous and we may be able to push the boundaries. I think that's right. I think we need, I think more diversity and diverse perspective is critical here, but also say kind of deploying that in a quote diverse way is also important. So mm -hmm. for example, things we think of like, let's go fast, let's quote break things, let's imagine a, a different way. We need that in healthcare, but probably not every corner of healthcare. Yeah. You can find a physician doing that, you know, in the ER, the hospital floor. And so we need kind of the spectrum of where can we do that, right? Where can we do things a little that they're maybe 
a little more innovative, but adhere more to kind of current clinical practices. And then we needed different layers, right? People like me doing it at payment, at delivery, at the patient experience, at how spaces are interacted with. The digital spaces, do you even need to walk into a hospital to get healthcare? What about people out in the quote wild using in their own communities, using their devices to access healthcare? I mean, there is such immense space here mm. and it all needs to connect. And going back to one thing I talked about before is, you know, if you have people doing things in this uncoordinated way, that fits into the gap I'm talking about, right? Um, how many people do I know that are working on this really cool, creative way of delivering healthcare? And they come to me and say, I found the solution. How do I make this work in the payment system? And how do I make it actually like get out to people? Yeah, what they're touching their bond is to me that gap. So we need diversity, but we need a diverse way of thinking about creativity. And then I think we need to stitch it together to make it work. Yeah. Instead, there's so many creative people going into working at these uh, technology firms and social media firms like Facebook and mm -hmm. spending their whole life creating a better like button mm -hmm. and yep. and what you're doing is so important like literally can change hundreds of millions of lives if we can design better payment models that are more equitable that literally it can transform communities so for those creatives who are thinking about how to get behind work that's meaningful uh, you, you could do that in healthcare i love that i want to get from your perspective as a physician researcher working on this how might we design a healthier life yeah well when i figured that out then i can call it a career <laughs> that that's when i've uh, that's when i've arrived yeah i'd say man a couple things i think the first is that one way to define or the first thing, one way to define and design a healthy life, I think, is to realize that both the things that we ought to be doing and the things that we ought not to be doing. So I'll give it from a healthcare framework, but I think it, it supplies the health more broadly, which is that you mentioned earlier this kind of momentum towards more healthcare. And man, I would say my perspective as a behavioral scientist is that people, it's easier oftentimes to do new things, do new medication, do this thing, than it is to stop doing things that are harmful. They're, they're not equal. They're actually very different things for psychological, social, cultural reasons. So I think designing a healthy life involves identifying not only those things that can lead to health, but also removing those things that don't lead to health. And it's easy to say like low value, waste, let's take away things that don't work. I think one of the challenges is those things exist for a reason. And there's a status quo that we need to overcome to do that. So I think to begin, we really need to understand what are the things we need to stop doing to design a healthy life? What are the structures real and figurative we need to take away to do that? And I wish there was more attention to that point. Mm. And I like this concept of the behavioral architecture, just thinking personally for me is, yeah, how can I design my day personally for better choices around health? So I just started exercising in the morning because I know if I try to structure my workout time later in the day, something pressing always comes up, whether it's more emails or meetings, I get pulled into a different project and it, it goes away first. But if I have it there, that's like my first decision in the morning, I get it done. And, but you know what you're saying, there's architecture behind our, our choices. And sometimes we can create those conditions for us to make better behavioral decisions around our health every day. Yeah. So let me draw a couple of parallels, um, which is 
this might be novel and creative unto itself, but let me try to draw a couple of parallels from designing payment into like, how do we design our daily lives? So I think the first we talked about is that it's really should be, I think, best grounded in values, right? What do we value? If we value that people having the best outcomes and driven by payment, but other people have very poor outcomes, you get what you design. But if our values are different, that we want equitable systems, the payment models and the delivery models will look different. So what's the analogy here is that it's what I'm hearing from you, Bon, is that exercise is important to you and how important, where does that rank in the priority of the many things we're all juggling as individuals? That sounds so obvious, but it turns out actually we are so incredibly pulled by what's urgent and what like buzzes and flashes and dings in front of us that like, if you align a life around values, right? Just like payment model, I think you get a lot more kind of impact out of that. That's the first. The second is again, really thinking about always being thoughtful about the unintended consequences, right? What I've learned from studying payment models is if you measure readmissions or you measure a certain clinical outcome, you'll have performance against that outcome. But if you don't measure the five other things, pain, mistrust, right? Experience, other things, then you won't know. Like you don't know what you don't know. And I think in that same way, as we think about a healthy life, what are the things we're doing? But also what are the things that you're not necessarily thinking about today? And I think for myself, thinking through actually the unintended consequences of my life choices is really important as well. And so I'll use your example, right? Like it's valuable to me to be healthy. I want to exercise. So I prioritize it in the architecture of my day. The unintended consequence of me not exercising is I'm not my best self. I don't show up in my best way for my children or my wife all the time. And I need to recognize that. I need to have the aperture to see those consequences and then feed that back into how I design and create an architecture in my day. So there's kind of two examples. I think there are others about kind of designing a healthy life. Josh, so great to connect again. Thank you for coming on the show. It was good seeing you again. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me and for highlighting all the different ways design is important in life, also in healthcare, even for something like payments and perhaps especially so. Cool. And remind me where to find your new initiative. What's the website? Yeah, it's healthequitypayment.org. All one word, healthequitypayment.org. And there's a call to action. I signed up uh, today. I put my signature on it. So I encourage you all to do the same. Go to the website. Check it out. You can find Dr. Josh Liao on Twitter. His handle is at Joshua L-I-A-O-M-D. Again, on Twitter, it's at Joshua L-I-A-O-M-D. You can reach out to me by Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Remember, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. The Design Lab was produced by Rob Leglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.